listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So we move further into the season of Advent, this week encountering the figure of John the Baptist. As I brought last Sunday's sermon to a close, I cited N.T. Wright's characterization of this season as a rich mix of politics, prophecy, prayer, and perseverance. And lest you have any question about the presence of politics in that mix, just look at how tonight's passage begins. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Arteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This, Luke is saying, is the context in which this whole gospel story will unfold. These are the people who held power, from the emperor himself right down to the high priests in the Jerusalem temple. Be well aware of that world, Luke is saying, that world and its power brokers as you hear these stories and wrestle in them. It is into that context that John the Baptist emerges, moving not towards the center of political and religious power, but rather out to the wilderness, to all the regions round the Jordan. And it's there, on the edge, that John calls the people to repentance, which he symbolizes with baptism. To help make sense of this character, John, Luke cites the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, who had spoken of the coming of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his ways straight. And it's more than fitting that Luke quotes a prophet of old, for that is precisely what John himself evokes his fiery language, his location in the wilderness, his call for repentance, and his insistence that it is simply not enough to be the descendants of Abraham. He is like Amos or Malachi, transplanted ahead several centuries, yet insistent about their ancient message. You have been living in ways that are unrighteous, not patterned after the Torah-shaped ethics of a covenant people. This must change, and change quickly, for God is about to act through one who is coming, one more powerful than me. I am just the warning cry, turn yourselves around. Well, as David Jeffrey comments, John the Baptist would not have done well in a culture-affirming, therapeutic, religious environment, which I think is a marvelous piece of understatement. 
1972, a book called I'm Okay, You're Okay landed on the New York Times bestseller list. And it remained there for fully two years. I'm okay, you're okay, to which John would have responded, are you kidding me? (laughs) None of us are okay. All of us need to get ourselves turned round, which is what the word repent means. No, John the Baptist would not have done well in a culture-affirming therapeutic religious environment. He not only calls those who come to hear him a brood of vipers, but he also makes it clear that a verbal repentance will not do. There must be concrete actions consistent with it to be authentic. Change is what is required. Change of heart, but also change of action in how you live what you do. So it was that when the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? John talked of sharing clothing and food with those in need, much as the Torah itself mandates. Don't forget those who have little or nothing, and don't take your own relative comfort for granted. Now what's really interesting is that among those who come out to hear John are people from two groups you'd simply not expect to be there, tax collectors and soldiers. To the tax collector, John says, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Like, don't take extra to skim, which is how they made their living. While to the soldiers, he says, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations. Be satisfied with your wages. Interesting, it's kind of a parallel message, right? He's saying to the tax collectors, don't get yourself rich by skimming. And to the soldiers, don't use your sword and your muscle to try to force people to cough up money in an extortion scheme. Notice, comments the New Testament scholar Mary Beth Dinkler, notice that both groups worked for the government. Keeping order in the name of the Roman emperor Tiberius, Luke's context of imperialism is unmistakable. There's that politics again, right? So she continues, tax collectors for their part were known to skim off the top filling their pockets with others' hard-earned money. John reminds both groups not to push beyond the limits of the authority they've been given. They are not to use fear, extortion, threats, to coerce others into giving them what they want. Rather, bearing fruits worthy of repentance means pursuing economic justice. For them, for these tax collectors and soldiers, this means doing only the job they've been given and being content with the compensation they receive. Change your life. Change your practice. Return to the ancient social ethics of the Torah. Be a covenant people. That's at the heart of John's message. Oh, and symbolize those changes, that turnaround, by being baptized 
which is actually a really jarring and radical thing for him to be asking of them. Baptism was the ritual that was undergone when a Gentile converted to Judaism. For Jews, there were requirements for immersion in water, for ritual purification in very specific circumstances, as in coming into contact with a dead body, for instance. But Jews were not required to be baptized in order to become Jews because they understood that by their birthright, by their descendancy from Abraham and Sarah, they were already the people of God. On the other hand, all Gentiles who wanted to become a part of Judaism needed to go through a ritual of baptism, of cleansing. And so for John to call Jews to repentance and baptism was to say essentially that they were no better than those Gentile outsiders. Again, no one is okay. Perhaps John's most fiery language comes when he begins to point towards the coming one. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals, he says. This one will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is convinced that when the Messiah comes, it will be in a spirit of almost raw righteousness, prepared to take that winnowing fork and divide the people into the righteous and the unrighteous, the deserving and the undeserving, the faithful and the unfaithful. We, however, happen to know that just over the wilderness horizon, it is Jesus who is coming to John, according to Matthew's version of the story. When Jesus comes and asks to be baptized, John doesn't want to do it, saying instead that Jesus, Jesus should baptize him. Yet Jesus is insistent. Baptize me, John. Among other things, doesn't that baptism represent a fundamental solidarity with all of those people who had come out afraid that they had failed, are under judgment, and are prepared to do anything, be dunked in the River Jordan, promise to turn around and do better, even let themselves be called a brood of vipers, anything to beg God's forgiveness. And there stands Jesus with them, up to his neck in the waters of that desert river. I suspect it left John shaking his head in confused wonder. Now, I think that all of this says that John was right in calling for changed hearts and new beginnings. He was right in insisting that words and deeds had to line up. I think he was right in seeing how desperately fragmented Israel had become under Roman imperial rule and that calling the tax collectors and soldiers to drop their coercive and corrupt ways spoke to that. 
I think that John was right about so much, but he didn't yet have the sort of imagination needed to see Jesus for all that he was to become, the one who stood with the people in the waters of the Jordan asking for baptism, the one who sat down with them at their meals, walked with them down dusty roads, had compassion for them in their deepest needs, healed them in their brokenness, and trusted them with those great short stories we call the parables. In the midst of hearing John's fiery words of righteousness and the call for repentance and the, the sort of the fear of that winnowing fork, we dare not lose sight of who and what Jesus came to be. One more thing. In beginning this section with a rehearsal of the names of all of those powerful political figures, part of Luke's point is also to say, Oh, and guess what? The emperor, Pilate, the high priest, all of the others, that's actually not where the real power, the real action, the final authority lies. The real story begins in a stable in Bethlehem, away from the centers of political power. Watch as it unfolds. God's politics are always marvelously off-kilter and off-center like that. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.